This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Happy New Year. We're back after a short festive break with the AJ Bell Money Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and this week we'll be talking about why Apple and Tesla shares haven't enjoyed a good start to 2023. We'll run through what to expect from the slew of retail companies updating on trading over the coming weeks and later we'll chat about the latest activities with one of the UK's favourite funds among retail investors. Joining me this week is Laura Souter. Hi there. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak wants all pupils in the UK to study maths up to the age of 18. So I'll be discussing the idea that putting personal finance in the centre of the curriculum might be one way to support this maths training and also give individuals the money management skills they'll need as an adult. Now, Tom Selby will be joining us on the podcast to talk about the rules around recycling money back into a pension. And I've got some important news on cash savings deals. So this is your warning to grab the best deals now as rates might start to fall back soon. But first up, let's talk markets. So Dan, have stocks and shares enjoyed a good start to the new year? Well, in the UK, you have. FTSE 100 up 1.4% on the first trading day back. Energy stocks were the drivers there. Oil price has been really rallying since the middle of December. Um, yeah, the market's been trying to price in this potential increase in demand from China, um, which has got plans to loosen COVID restrictions. Of course, that could reopen its economy. And also the US has sort of indicated it wants to buy more oil to replenish its strategic reserves. But of course, what goes up one day doesn't necessarily do the same the next day. And then we had on the 4th of January, oil price falling more than 2% in a day. I think it's just the markets getting jitters around economic prospects. And that sort of this, this sort of hot, cold feeling is sort of unhelpful investors. And unfortunately, I think it might continue for some time going into the new year. Because in the US, the markets definitely didn't start uh, well in 2023. S&P 500 down 0.4%. NASDAQ down nearly 1%. And some of the key contributors here were um, weak shares in Apple and Tesla. Apple was falling on fears about disruptions to supplies after there was a COVID outbreak at a big factory in China run by one of its suppliers. And then Tesla issued its quarterly numbers and there was a big miss for the number of vehicles that it managed to deliver in that period. So um, I think Apple and Tesla, they've been very popular holdings for investors in recent years. And I think for a long time, people thought they could just do no wrong. But times are changing. And it does mean that investors have to be alert to them issuing bad news as well as good news. So and I think also that applies to anything in their portfolio. It's very hard to sort of truly gauge what's going on. And I think that one of the key fears here is that particularly in the US, the earnings expectations perhaps are still too high considering what's going on in the world. So um, I think just be, if you're if you're an equity investor, just be a little bit cautious as we start to sort of move into the first few months of the year. Now, this time of year over the next few weeks is quite a busy time for retail companies, isn't it, as they update the market on Christmas trading. So we've obviously had a bit of economic gloom, cost of living backdrop, as well as high inflation. So do we think that it's going to be a bit doom and gloom from these announcements or will there be some positivity? Well, I think the key thing to consider is that shares in retail companies have already been falling for the last year. So one could argue that expectations are already low. Um, just think about what's been happening in the last month. Early December will have been terrible for the retail sector. If you think about all that snow across the country, freezing cold weather. 
And of course, then we've got raw mail strikes. Has that been putting people off from ordering stuff? Not sure that it would arrive in time for Christmas. So I'd say that, you know, online companies like ASOS and Boohoo, you know, the, I brace yourself for potentially some bad news there. We know that Christmas has been quite good for shops in retail parks due to um, sort of latest figures on um, footfall numbers. But you know, as we're recording you know, this podcast, put finishing touches, we'll have some figures out from B and M and Next, and of course they they would could give a good indication of what's been happening in retail parks. But next week it's going to get really busy in terms of who's reporting. We've got JD Sports um, DFS on Tuesday. ASOS comes on Thursday, and then the following week, you get names like Curry's and WH Smith's and Dunelm. And I think just with something like uh, JD Sports, people have been very nervous about whether, um, you know, with the cost of living crisis, can we afford to go buy expensive trainers? Nike actually came out just before Christmas and said things are actually picking up. So I think that there's a, there's an expectation that JD Sports might come out and say, um, you know, we've met expectations it's it's been okay and i think what we've seen is for for companies that have been previously sold down on the stock market when they've come out simply just to meet guidance they've had a very strong reaction for the share price now there's no guarantee that's going to happen for jd sports but it's worth observing this trend has been seen with multiple companies in in sort of same situation in recent months of course the other one to to look at is dfs of course, in a, in a, if we got a recession upon us, the last thing people want to do is splash out a couple of thousand pounds on a sofa. Um, you know, DFS has been warning for several times last year that there's already seen a downturn in the sort of the upholstery market. But in November, it said things have started to pick up. So I'm, I'd definitely be watching DFS one with interest to see whether it's been a bit more resilient than some people might think. Um, what about the big supermarkets? It feels like lots of people maybe opted to cook at home rather than go out to restaurants. I'm not talking about necessarily the big Christmas dinner, but kind of meeting up with friends and socialising around the festive period. So does that mean that supermarkets are likely to have seen kind of bumper sales? Well, we've got Sainsbury's reporting on the 11th of January. Tesco and Marks and Spencers are on the 12th. But we already know, thanks to a research company called Cantar, that actually... Christmas has been pretty good for supermarkets. Take-home grocery sales increased by 7.6% in the 12 weeks to Christmas Day. Now, year-on-year growth in December was even higher at 9.4%, and that's the fastest rate we've seen since February 2021. Now, if you look within that, value-led products, the sales here were up significantly, but grocery price inflation was the real driving factor behind this rather than increased purchasing. So if you look at the amount that people bought over this period, sales measured by volume are actually down 1% year on year. So I think what we'll see when these supermarkets report is they're going to say that sales growth has actually been pretty strong. So um from the Cantar figures, we know that Tesco, Sainsbury's, Astor and Morrison, uh, they've all done pretty well. Now, Tesco and Sainsbury's is the only one on the UK stock market, but it does pay to look at the whole sector to see who's sort of leading the way. Acardo, interestingly, increased sales by 8.2% and maintained its market share. Now, that will be a big relief to lots of investors in that stock because People have been worried that Cardo was finding life very hard. And actually, when those Cantar figures came out on the 4th of January, Cardo shares jumped up on that news. And it's quite understandable why we saw that reaction. 
I think maybe that's the impact of kind of people treating themselves a bit more at Christmas, maybe not going out for a meal, but they think they'll buy, you know, some M&S items to treat themselves. And that's where Ocado, I guess, has benefited. But I think those Kantar figures were so interesting from the fact that people are spending more, but not actually buying any more. One of the facts I quite liked in it was that there was an almost 20% increase in the spend on mince pies, but actually no increase in the number of mince pies bought. So it's just costing 20% more than last year. Everyone loves a mince pie fact. Um, But obviously the supermarkets have been very busy. Is there something else that we can expect from, you know, trading updates coming forward? Yeah, I think I mean the key thing I'll be looking for is any reference to profit margins because you know the costs have gone up, costs of goods have gone up for the consumer. So like you say, we're paying more to buy a box of mince pies, but supermarkets will also have to pay more to obtain those goods in the first place. So I think you know investors will want to know which supermarkets have been able to get the best deals and and whether they're actually protecting their profit margins or where actually some of them are sort of losing uh, a slight bit of margin just to stay competitive and, and try and have the, the sort of the, the best value offering in the market simply to to get people through their doors and make them the supermarket of choice. So let's move on to Rishi Sunak's plans for all pupils to study maths until they're 18. So when I saw this on the news, I immediately thought it would give this opportunity to get personal finance on the curriculum, because surely that must have benefits down the line. Laura, what's your take on this sort of uh, this development? Yeah, so I think it's interesting at the moment, all Mr. Sunak has come out to say is that he has this kind of aspiration, they're not solid plans with a kind of practical implementation, but this aspiration of people to um, study maths up until 18. And at the moment, he says just half of 16 to 19 year olds study maths. And I know that I, despite working in finance, hated maths at school and dropped it as soon as I could once I got past GCSEs. And so I think a lot of people feel like that. But I think one option would be to make kind of practical maths like personal finance a topic in schools up to age 18. So there's always a lot of talk about teaching personal finance in schools and it is actually on the curriculum for secondary um, education not for primary but for secondary which is probably the right place for it to be because then it means people are learning about it um, shortly before they go and use it so if you're teaching an 18 year old about things like cash savings or um, credit cards that's much closer to the point where they might come to interact with those products but I think the issue is it's on the curriculum but not necessarily in a prominent way so in lots of schools it might be covered off by um, you know an hour lesson taught by a teacher and I think from doing some research around this one of the issues is obviously that schools have so much to cover that this then gets pushed to the to the back of the pile. But also a lot of teachers themselves say that they don't feel confident in teaching this. If if they haven't been taught personal finance in their personal life, um, then it's quite tricky for them to teach that to students. So I think there definitely could be more of a push to help those teachers, give them more resources, um, but place it more as a prominent subject. So it could be that you end up with something like personal finance being a subject in its own right in the similar way to, is general studies still a thing? I used, I did that at school. That always felt like a bit of a weird subject, but yeah, um, it, you can make more, it much more prominent. It's, general studies has morphed into something else. But yeah, I think obviously within that, that covers so many different things as well. It's hard to sort of pinpoint exactly um you know where the where the personal finance would fit into that and it's i think when we look at the research that's done on this it 
ends up becoming something that's taught at home. So it means if parents aren't financially literate, they're then not able to teach their children. So you end up with this continuation down the generations of people not fully understanding things like how interest rates work or what mortgages are or how they work. Um, But there are, one thing I will say is there are lots of resources out there for parents who want to teach their children at home until this becomes a more prominent thing in schools. So there's a really good thing for younger kids where the Bank of England has teamed up with Beano um, and they've got a lot of fun kind of workbooks and activities and things that you can go through that explain complicated financial terms in much simpler ways. Um, Martin Lewis, the money saving expert, has written a kind of guide to personal finance that he's um, published that the parents and schools can then download and use that to um, to teach people. So and there's also a lot of organisations who go into schools and teach about money, um, which is something that schools could adopt. But yeah, I think it's interesting that the kind of this conversation about maths will hopefully spark a bit of a debate about personal finance. And um, I know personally that some of the stuff that I was taught in GCSE maths, I would much rather have not learned that and instead learn how a mortgage works or what interest rate is or how debt can build up. Things like that that are actually much more useful and practical for everyday life. Yeah, thanks, Laura. I imagine we'll probably return to the topic of personal finance um, among younger people in the coming months. So now it's time to update listeners on Fundsmith Equity Fund as it's such a widely held investment. And I saw that Fundsmith has just posted its first ever annual loss, which will shock a lot of uh, investors in that. So what's caused it? Yeah, it was down 13.8% last year. So um, that's the first, like you say, first time since it actually launched, which was back in 2010. Uh, I mean, if it, it, I think it can be explained um, on exposure to highly rated growth stocks, which are derated. Essentially, that means that these, these shares trading on a lower multiple of earnings. And, and some of the names in its portfolio had a particularly bad year. So, I mean, if you think about that 13.8% loss, that could be a bit of a shock to the system for a lot of people with money in this fund. The previous three years, you were seeing annual gains between 18 and sort of 25%. So, um, but, but I think while, while this is all very disappointing, anyone who's been in the fund for some time can't really complain Analyzed return since launch is 15.5%. So, you know, it's way ahead of the 11% return you'd got from tracking um, sort of the MSCI World Index, which is like a benchmark for, for shares around the world um, in sterling terms. And I think perhaps we could we could give Fundsmith some slack. But what's more interesting to me is how fund manager Terry Smith seems to be making more changes to his portfolio than we come to expect. Because one of the sort of the, the mantras of Fundsmith is do nothing. Um, and I've seen some accusations that Terry Smith is, is not actually following this line and he's been quite busy changing things around. So in December, um, the fund sold out of Intuit and PayPal. We go back to October, it, it took a stake in Apple. Um, August saw it sell out of Cone. Um, in May, it sold out of Starbucks. Now, you'd normally expect fund managers to tweak the portfolio, but you know, Fundsmith has sort of marketed itself as about identifying strong companies that you invest in for a very long time. Now, I guess the landscape has changed a lot for companies, given how a recession could hurt earnings in, in sort of the near term. But there are some people wondering if Fundsmith is now buying high and selling low. So you know, PayPal was down around 60% in the past year before Terry Smith sold out. 
And there's one stock in the portfolio. I'm really still quite surprised it's there. It is the, the Facebook owner, Meta. So it's, it's not a sort of a top 10 position for the fund, but it's still there. And that's down by about two thirds over the last year in value. I mean, I, I don't know, you know. Facebook seems to be much less relevant in the world of social media these days. Uh, my teenage daughter thinks I'm ancient for having a Facebook account, saying that her generation <laughs> wouldn't be seeing dead without it. And I sort of said, well, do you, do you, you know, aren't there any of your friends that have a, a Facebook account? She went, no, no. The only person I know is because one person in her class, because her grandmother only knows how to use Facebook, and it's the only way to communicate with her. <laughs> Otherwise, it's like, you know, it, it's just it's, it's not really for anyone. So I think, you know, Fundsmith have always argued that Meta, um, the Facebook owner is all about a play on um, online advertising, and it's such a big dominant player in it. But I don't know if if this if you think that fewer people are using Facebook or, or sort of the appeal of it. Even my generation, I notice all the, my friends on there. No one posts anything anymore. So at some point, advertisers are going to sort of say, "Well, is this really the best platform for us?" So um, I guess watch this space. We'll, we'll, we'll hopefully um, put some questions to, to Terry Smith to see what he says about it. So podcast listener Mike has been in touch about pensions recycling and has asked us to clarify the rules about moving money back into a retirement pot. So we've drafted in our resident retirement expert, Tom Selby, to answer his question. Tom, what are the rules? Hi, Laura. Happy New Year. So um, pensions recycling is something I get asked about fairly often. So when, when we talk about recycling in relation to pensions, what, what that means is taking your 25% tax-free cash from a defined contribution scheme and stuffing it immediately back into a pension. And so in doing that, you could benefit from tax relief on that money again. So you take the 25% tax-free cash, put it in, and you'll get tax relief at your marginal rate. And then you'll be able to get take 25% of that money back as tax-free cash again. Now, clearly, if there were no limits on doing this, then there'd be a risk to the exchequer, so to the Treasury, of people abusing the pension tax system to keep washing that tax-free cash through their pensions and keep on getting extra tax relief as well as extra tax-free cash. Now, that's clearly something that any Chancellor would want to limit. So HMRC has specific rules in place to prevent excessive recycling. So you can do, you can put some tax-free cash back into a pension, but there are specific restrictions around that. So firstly, HMRC will consider recycling to potentially breach its rules where the tax-free sum, so that 25% tax-free sum or sums received over a 12-month period are worth more than £7,500. So that's the first specific rule which could potentially indicate a breach of those recycling rules. The the second key rule and where it would kick in is where the payment of that tax-free lump sum has resulted in a 30% or more increase in the value of your contributions to your pension compared to what might normally have been expected. Now, That last one might sound slightly vague, but it's actually quite a specific condition that HMRC can set out and test. So it'll look at the contributions paid over the rest of the tax year after you took your tax-free cash, plus up to two more years after that point. And then that will be compared with the contributions during a similar period before your tax-free cash has been taken. So that's where HMRC is checking to see if the contribution you're making is 
dissimilar to the contributions that you would normally have been making had you not received your tax-free lump sum. So those two key tests, whether or not the, the tax-free sum you've received is over £7,500 or more within the 12-month period, and if that increases your contributions by 30% or more, more beyond what the HMRC would normally expect. If both those things happen, then you'll be at risk of breaching HMRC's recycling rules and you could be subject to a tax charge of up to 55%. So quite a, a significant penalty if you breach those rules. Probably worth noting, you can't get round this by paying into different pension schemes. So HMRC will look at all of your contributions when it's assessing whether or not recycling has happened. Um, also, I've been asked this one a few times as well, HMRC will penalise you for recycling if you borrow money to pay contributions or pay into your pension out of savings and then use the tax-free lump sum to pay off the loan or top up those savings. So there aren't really any ways to get around this. They are specific rules. You can you can look at the HMRC tax manual to, to double check. So if you just search HMRC pensions recycling, then there's some very specific information on what is and isn't allowed. And as always, if you're at all unsure, then it's worth speaking to, to a financial advisor to make sure you're not at risk of falling on the wrong side of those rules. Well, thanks, Tom. And of course, if anyone listening has any other questions they'd like to ask about pensions or, or the broader retirement investing world, um, please drop us a line. It's podcast at ajbell.co.uk. So, Laura, let's start the show. You mentioned that anyone looking to get a good deal on cash savings needs to act quick. Why the rush? So lots of people have been rushing to secure these deals. We've seen this big rates war in the savings market that we've talked about before, where easy access savings rates have risen, but fixed rate accounts have also risen dramatically. Um, and what we're expecting is that after that big war in the savings market, that's going to tail off at some point. Now, it's obviously impossible to predict the exact point it's going to tail off, but savings rates are driven by a few different things. Um, lots of people expect that when the Bank of England raises interest rates, that means that their savings rates are automatically going to get better. But actually, savings rates are also reliant on competition from other providers, but also um, the government bond market, which is why we saw rates rise dramatically after the mini budget. It was kind of the positive impact where the mortgage market saw the more negative impact of that. Um, and so while we're expecting the Bank of England to raise interest rates further from here, um, um, lots of experts think that savings rates might rise a little bit, but they're not going to rise dramatically more from here. And so that means that if you've got cash that's still sitting there in accounts, not earning much money, um, this is a really good time to move it. Obviously, January is a month where not many people are going out. It's a good time to kind of do a bit of a spring clean of your finances. Um, and actually, we've seen lots of people do that. So the Bank of England publishes some figures looking at where people are saving money and, and kind of which different accounts they're using. And what we're seeing at the moment is a big move out of um, easy access cash accounts that aren't paying you any money and into fixed term accounts where you can really get decent returns on your money. Um, so it means that kind of apathy that we usually see in the savings market, we're seeing some of that ebb away. Um, 
I thought it might be useful to go through a few examples of what you can get at the moment to give you an idea of whether your savings are earning the most they could. So at the moment, an easy access account, the top rate is 2.86%, so just shy of 3% from Zopa. Um, if you wanted to fix for one year, you can get 4.3%. You get slightly more for fixing for two years, so you get 4.5%. But those longer term fixes aren't going to give you lots more. And that largely reflects the fact that we're expecting the Bank of England to raise interest rates a little bit from here, but then expect them to cut them in the longer term. And so savings providers have kind of got to reflect that. Um, On one account that I did unearth that is amazing is you can now get 7% on a regular saver. So this is with First Direct, um, and you can save up to £300 a month. And this is a fixed rate for a year, but 7% is pretty unheard of in the savings market, even if it is on that limited amount of money. The caveat there is that you can't withdraw the money um, during that year period. You can vary the amount that you save each month down to as little as £25. But if you take the money out, then you'll get a much lower interest rate. But 7% is pretty good for anyone who wants to start the savings habit this year and put away a bit of money each month. Thanks, Laura. Let's have our final guest for the podcast this week. So Ed Smith is co-chief investment officer at Rathbone Investment Management. Now he's been looking at the issue of inferior productivity and what the solution might be. So Ed, thanks for joining us. Slowing productivity seems to be a problem in many parts of the world. What's actually been the cause of it? Well, that um, that's really a trillion dollar question, and it and it is a trillion dollar question because the slowdown has occurred in almost all developed countries across all sectors in almost all developed countries, uh, even in what's often assumed to be sectors at the vanguard of productivity growth, like um, IT, communications, technology. So there must be some universal reasons for that. But unfortunately, nobody is is sure. And we explored the literature uh, recently um, for for a conference we held on it. And we identified over 30 explanations, none of which are mutually exclusive, some of which are proximate causes symptomatic of a bigger underlying cause. I'll just go through perhaps some of the, the leading ones quickly now. So there's the pessimistic argument that we're just incapable of delivering past levels of innovation, right? That great leap forward of 1870 to 1970 freed us from an unremitting daily grind of painful labor, drudgery in the household, darkness, isolation, early death. And that's just simply unrepeatable. Uh, We know that it takes more research and development to generate new discoveries today as well. Uh, but perhaps more optimistically, we just simply it's just simply a question of timing. So productivity and innovation tends to come in waves. There's been five of them since the 70, since the, 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 the late 1700s. And because of the lags involved in adopting and adapting to new processes, it takes time before productivity growth accelerates as res- resources are devoted to innovation and reorganization. Uh, and the benefits are realized much later. So perhaps we're not less innovative, we're just in the trough between the last wave and the and the next. And perhaps you can think of like last in November, OpenAI's chat's GBT, GPT language generator, generated a lot of headlines. Microsoft owns a stake in that. It's scientifically revolutionary, but can anyone tell you what its revolutionary w- real world application is going to be? No, they, no, they can't. 
And then finally, central to this sort of wave theory and indeed the whole of contemporary economics is the idea of technological diffusion, learning from others and improving on things. And there's a lot of evidence now that the best new innovations are getting stuck within superstar firms at the technological frontier, and they're becoming a little less productive and smaller, less productive firms are far less able to uh, uh, adopt um, uh, new ideas. And this could be because of misuse of patent law, deficient competition law, vested political interests, market short-termism, all of those things are probably playing some role in preventing ideas from circulating as they, they should. But perhaps the short sort of quick answer is that business investment and public capital investment has just been on a 60 year decline. And without investment, you can't really get new innovation and, and productivity enhancements. But for the companies, perhaps in the UK and the US, who are actually trying to address this problem. Is it they're just sort of simply looking to introduce automated services like robots or can productivity be improved by other bits of technology or, or actually just having more staff so you know, employees aren't overworked? Yeah, so I mean, most so most modern companies are really just a product of their people and their processes. We tend to live in sort of really ideas or knowledge-based economies these days. Um, and so business school studies suggest that a constant reappraisal, you know, emphasis on the re of, of these things and how they are organized is really key to companies uh, internally sort of boosting productivity. You know, buying robots is no good, actually, if you don't invest adequately in new organizational processes so that you know, staff can work alongside them. And hiring more staff is no good if you don't invest properly in their training and constant learning. And perhaps one of the theories why uh, the UK has had a particularly poor productivity performance compared to the rest of the world, worse than others, uh, is that we've got this huge um, training gap, uh, bigger than, than most other, uh, other um, countries. Um, but strong, strong levels of research and development, particularly when financed with cash flow rather than debt, is a key sort of marker within firms that tends to be associated not only with productivity success, but actually you know, for, for this audience and for my job, yeah, we're interested in it because it's also a marker of share price success over the long term as well, strong levels of, of R&D. And you can see that in companies um, like you know, Microsoft, to go for a real blue chip example, spend a lot on R&D relative to its sales. Uh, but you can see it in interesting companies like Autodesk that provide computer-aided design for the construction industry. That sector is a the productivity laggard, so they're doing a lot there to try and change things in that sector. Um, yeah, a lot of these companies come with cyclical risks right now, but 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 they they tend to be interesting for both the productivity problem and for investors looking for better returns. So do you think tax plays a part with productivity? So you know, a lower tax rate might actually lead to more business investment, which in turn could boost productivity. Yeah, so I think, I mean, there's a lot of political nostrums around tax, you know, from, from politicians of all stripes. Um, and really, it's just, it's, uh, the world is just far more complicated than, than it really being influenced by, by a tax rate. And 
that complexity is why the empirical studies from the last 25 years or so find uh, only a weak, if any, relationship at all between tax rates or tax changes and productivity improvements or, or uh, greater investment. The European Economic Review just last year, just last August, published what's called in the jargon, a meta-analysis, so looks at the conclusions you can draw from 42 other primary studies on corporation tax and economic growth, and concluded there's no statistically significant effect uh, observable. Yeah, and you can see, just look at Europe, the most productive countries tend to be the relatively high tax social democracies of Northern Europe. Now, I'm not saying they're the perfect model, but it does tell you that it's, it's, it's more complicated. So, I mean, what is clear from the literature is that getting rid of tax loopholes and special treatment of favorite firms is really important. Permanently incentivizing R&D, research and development, that's important. So these temporary super deductions that you get aren't really much good. They just uh, bring forward investment that would have been made anyway. You need permanent uh, incentives. And there may be something in preventing a situation where firms can forego investing uh, in themselves in new technology or training and employ increasingly relatively cheap workers. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think, again, the, the, that's been particularly the case in the UK relative to, to some other advanced uh, economies. So that's all we have time for this week. Don't miss next week's show where Dan is going to be chatting to Custodian Property Income REIT about opportunities in regional real estate. Until then, thanks for listening. And we'd love it if you could leave a review of the podcast wherever you're listening to it. See you next week. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.